Hello, it's Anthony here. First off, I just wanted to apologize that this episode is out a little bit later than usual. It's just been a very busy week of theater madness. As you may or may not know, this is the last episode of season two, so I just wanted to give a little preamble for those of you who usually skip the credits. Alexander and I just wanted to say thank you to all you listeners out there who made this season even bigger than our first. We're not 100% sure when season three will come out, but you can stay updated by following The Wrong Station on Twitter and Facebook. And you can also follow Alexander and I on Twitter to keep up with our doings, Wrong Station or otherwise. But really the main message here is, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. In the old palace at Lacernae, discipline was looser than at the great palace on the other end of the city, and Irene could hear the servants and eunuchs gossip in the garden below her window. She would stand in purple darkness, back pressed against one of the marble pillars supporting the window's arch, and strain her ears to catch scraps of conversation as they drifted up through the purple leaves and white flowers of the citrus trees. In Constantinople, somebody was always listening. In these troubled days, the rumors were rampant. Some said the emperor's favorite, Michael Redopolos, had won a great victory against the caliph in Anatolia. Others, that he had been killed in battle, and the caliph had had him stuffed and filled with wires to be used as an automaton to greet guests of the court at Baghdad. Whenever she heard a version of this second rumor, Irene would place the first two knuckles of her right hand between her teeth and bite down to keep from making a noise. In her apartments, in her prison, she would lose one of her last connections to the outside world, to Michael, if she was heard by the servants and they found a different garden for secret talks. On this night, it was a new rumor, one that she had not heard before. Have you heard the news? I may have. Which news? About Michael Redopolos. <laughs> they say he is dead. They say the Ghazis tore him limb from limb and nailed his hands and head to their standard. Ah, of course that one isn't true. Redopolos defeated the Ghazis, chased them back into Syria, sieged Antioch until they paid him tribute. Everybody knows this. The second speaker paused. A metallic clink was followed by a small glow of light between the leaves, and then the curl of sweet opium smoke up into the moonlight. On his return, he was the last of his men across the Saris River, and the Ghazis ambushed him. The purple emperor's favorite is dead and good riddance to him for supporting a devil-worshipping usurper. Is this what you think of him? It's brave of you to say so, Theophilus. Who knows where my loyalties are? Everybody does. The old emperor made you one of his guard. The new emperor made you a eunuch. Hmm. 
I wonder where your loyalties could be, Ingar. Irene's heart jumped in her chest. She knew that name. His voice, too, had been familiar, though it had changed somewhat in the years since she'd heard it in her father's house. Then, Ingar had been every bit the Viking mercenary. Now his speech had become refined. Now he sounded like a creature of the imperial court. Castration didn't change a man's voice, but perhaps it changed the man. Ingar now sounded... not more feminine, but less as though he were trying to signify his masculinity. Maybe you're mistaken, Theophilus. Maybe I'm happier as a eunuch. Maybe the Purple Emperor has given me... serenity. <laughs> Don't play games with me, Ingar. Vikings always have plans for their money and testicles, back in Rusland or Daneland or wherever they come from. If you were a Roman, the usurper could have bought you back. Money and influence for your family, sure. But for a Viking... <laughs> I'll risk trusting you. For a long moment, Irene waited to hear what came next. She bit down on the fingers of her right hand, reopening scabs. She wanted to lean out the window and scream, What about Michael? Unnoticed in the darkness, a purple stream of blood was running from her middle knuckle to the curled fingers of her fist. From there, it dropped star-shaped spots on her bare feet and the tessellated floor. Why so quiet, Ingar? Hit a nerve. Come now, tell me your news. <sighs> All right, Theophilus. The news is this. Michael Radopoulos is alive, and he's coming back. Back? Back. You cannot mean. He is going to overthrow the Purple Emperor. <laughs> and what? Become a usurper himself? Some favor he'd be doing us. When it's done, he plans to restore the old dynasty. What? Has he found a pretender, Ingar? There are no heirs. The old emperor is dead. His brothers are dead. If you want proof, their heads are still stapled to the Golden Gate. The emperor is dead. But the last time I checked, his widow is still alive. Living here, if memory serves. In the window, the bottom had fallen out of Irene's stomach. That half-viking bitch... Ingar, you're out of your mind if you think. Keep your voice down, Theophilus. You're talking about the Empress. I'm talking about Ingar. This is ridiculous. I have to go. Go? Where to, Theophilus? Get out of my way, Ingar. I have business to attend to. Theophilus, I know who you're reporting to. Irene put a hand over her mouth and fell back against the pillar. A breeze crept through that protracted moment of silence and murmured among the purple trees. Then... Just as the wind died away, a sound of knives drawn, a quiet scuffle. Somebody was thrown against the wall below her, a soft thud and a soft gasp. The sound of a metal point grinding against crimson bricks. Then, silence again, and the distant sound of ship's bells rising from the golden horn. A last tendril of saccharine smoke rose against the purple night. Irene, Ingar, is that you? Yes, it's me. Michael sent me. I'm here to get you out. She dug her fingernails into the skin of her forearm, and it did not wake her from any dream. How long until he gets here? What if they catch us on the road? Irene, he's here. He's here in the city. It's happening tonight. She could not believe it, and yet she wanted it to be true too much to not believe it. I'm coming up. Gather your things. We have to be gone before somebody discovers Theophilus. In dreamlike purple darkness, she wandered back through her apartments, her luxurious cell, Purple shadows hung behind the silk curtains of her bed frame and windows. Gold braziers held red-gold coals, casting gold through the purple gloom, and through the arch of the windows, lights from the exurb of the Galata shone gold on the purple waters of the Golden Horn. 
She had gems and gee-jaws of gold and porphyry, topaz and amethyst, clothes of purple brocade and cloth of gold, but none of them meant anything to her. In a chest by the foot of her bed, she found a dark set of old soldier's trousers and a quilted tunic stained purple by old wine. Beneath them, she left undisturbed her father's helmet and coat of mail, but took the one possession which mattered to her most. Unspotted by rust, and pattern welded so its head seemed to writhe with purple and gold in the flickering light, she found her father's axe. Crossing the horn in a small boat, Michael Radopoulos, the emperor's favorite, entered the city by means of a rope ladder which a loyal agent had hung from the walls near the church of St. Acacius. During his time in Anatolia, he had grown a beard and taken to wearing his hair short. A new scar had changed his face, once known for its youthful beauty. Few would now recognize this thin and quiet man. Alone, he walked under the square shadow of the Asorian Tower and followed the ruins of the walls of Septimus Severus. In places, these had been stripped to the foundations for building materials, but now and again they still rose like burial mounds in the moonlight, in silent commemoration of the passing days of governments and emperors. His route brought him to the very doors of the great palace, beneath the eyes of the sentries whose task it would have been to kill him if they had known who he was. Great streamers of purple cloth had been hung from the parapets, inkly in the gloom. The new emperor of Constantinople had given himself the title Purple Emperor, a reference some said to the purple robes of imperial office. Others claimed it was because he had put on these clothes while they were still purple with his predecessor's blood and some whispered of a religious significance to the color, of a secret sect that he had joined during his lost years in the East. Beyond the robes of office, the emperor had liveried his servants and eunuchs in the imperial color, had painted the palace walls, set eyes of amethyst in the icons and mosaics of the capital's great churches. A new figure began appearing in the city's religious art, an angel with purple wings and a purple robe and a crown made of eyes. The patriarch of the church had demanded to know the meaning of this heterodox character. The palace claimed it was the angel Gabriel, but the scenes where he was portrayed were unfamiliar. Nobody could remember a tradition where Gabriel punished the unrighteous by taking their eyes. Nobody in any story or any text could remember a tradition where the angel Gabriel had been one of the crucifixioners of Christ. When the patriarch had remained unconvinced, the palace had sacked and replaced him. The new patriarch proved more pliant. At the church of St. Sergius in Bacchus, a light was burning above the arch of the door. Michael hit his face more carefully and knocked. A monk answered. The man's eyes widened when he saw who stood on the doorstep, but he said nothing, for his vow of silence had been made stricter by the removal of his tongue. Perhaps, though, the monk was not so surprised to see Michael Redopoulos at his door when he was supposed to be with the army in Farcalicia. Since the time of Theodosius, the monks of Constantinople had played their role in the drama of the capital. Forgive me. I know it's late. The monk dipped his head. Sergius and Bacchus protected me and my men on the campaign. The first thing I wanted to do when I arrived back in the city was to pray at their shrine. The monk dipped his head. Michael wasn't sure if the man believed him, or even cared. He had been a patron of the church for a long time, since Irene had showed him the secret in the crypt. Maybe it had bought him loyalty. Maybe it was all a trap. Without acknowledgement, the monk unlocked a wrought iron gate and led him down a stairwell which was too short for a man of Michael's height and too narrow for a man with his fear of confined spaces. The catacomb was unlit, 
but by implicit memory the monk found a flint lighter in his robes and struck sparks into a pool of oil by the foot of the door. With a sound like breath, the oil caught, and a reddish glow bled across the ancient chamber. Casting a semicircle of shadow, a row of stone benches had been carved from the floor. Like a pair of dark wings, they wrapped around a low stone dais. Purple in the light, two sarcophagi carved from porphyry sat on the dais. Between them, in the shining gold leaf, was an icon depicting the twin saints. Thank you, the monk nodded. I would prefer to say my prayers in private. The monk nodded again, but as he turned to climb back up the narrow stairs, Michael caught him by the sleeve. If it's all the same to you, I would prefer nobody knew I was in the city. I would strongly prefer it. As he spoke, he drew aside his cloak to show the monk the pommel of his sword. The monk's eyes did not widen. He merely dipped his head once more and retreated up the stairs. Alone at last, Michael approached the dais. Some remnant of his childhood education in the faith jangled in his skull as he contemplated the blasphemy he was about to commit. But then he smiled. If God was on his side, he would commit worse crimes than blasphemy before the sun was up. He climbed the dais and placed both hands on the lid of the sarcophagus of St. Sergius. Beneath his grip, a hidden set of ball bearings began to shift. With little effort, he pushed aside the coffin's lid. Inside, the darkness of the tomb stared up at him. They took a moment to stare back, the darkness reflecting purple from his teeth. Straddling the edge of the sarcophagus, he swung himself over and fell inside. Above his head, by the work of some secret mechanism or the hand of some secret angel, the lid of the sarcophagus rolled back into place. In pure darkness, Michael Redopolos, the emperor's favorite, found the passage and drew his sword. From the Bucolian Palace, the house of Justinian, no lights could be seen across the water as they could at Vlacernae, only the deep purple night rolling in from the still surface of the Sea of Marmara. In the imperial chambers, where men of uncertain legitimacy had ruled since the days when Leo was crowned by Aspar and his Goths, a cold wind from the water filled the marble arcades like sails. In his bed, the emperor stirred and moaned in his sleep. Palace rumor had long held that the usurper did not sleep easily, and some joked that the only thing purple about the emperor were the circles under his eyes. In a wooden chair by the foot of the emperor's bed, the grand chamberlain dozed with a naked sword across his lap. The breeze stirred in his hair and he blinked awake. For a lifetime, the role of Chamberlain had been filled by one of the Vikings of the Imperial Guard, but the usurper trusted none of them, suspecting loyalty to the old regime. To fill the vacant offices at his court, he had chosen all young and new men from the provinces. For his personal guard, he used only the strange men he had brought with him from the mountains near Capagac, in farthest Armenia. These men rarely spoke, and they had never bothered to learn Greek. Most of them had devotional tattoos, Sometimes a cross, sometimes a crescent, sometimes a flame, but always a purple set of wings. Rising from his chair, the Chamberlain stepped out onto the balcony. The wind stiffened and he raised both hands like wings, feeling the subtle lift between the pinions of his outstretched fingertips. In the moonless night he mouthed a prayer, though to whom or what it would have been impossible to tell unless, like the Emperor, you spoke that strange dialect. The Chamberlain leaned forward over the balcony, poised perilously on the cusp of flight, the wind ruffling his purple garments like feathers. 
From the shadows behind him, a figure emerged. In one step, Michael Radopoulos, the Emperor's favorite, had closed the gap between them, swung with both hands his sword crimped into the base of the Chamberlain's skull, making a noise that was surprisingly loud and flat. Swung from low to high, the impact knocked him up and over the railing to tumble into purple darkness below. In the scant moment between the fall and the vanishing, it seemed to Michael that the Chamberlain soared instead of tumbled, spread arms in rich cloth catching the wind like the purple wings of a vulture in the mountains. But the splash did come, and after a few moments Michael knew heavy brocade would have been filled with seawater, gold jewelry would have sought the sea floor, and there would have been no evidence of his crime but for the smear of blood on his sword. He breathed deeply. The purple wind filled his hair and open mouth. He could feel the purple filling him, turning him imperial breath by breath. He turned to where the usurper still writhed in his sleep. Breath by breath he stepped towards the edge of the royal bed, each breath one closer to the Emperor's last breath, and Michael's first breath as Emperor. The usurper rolled onto his back. In the gloom Michael could still recognize those features. The silvery hair and beard, the shadowy eyes, the deep lines on the brow and cheeks. Michael turned the sword upside down in his hand, holding it like a dagger, with his left palm pressed against the pommel. He raised it to the height of his chest, angling it towards the Emperor's heart. He hesitated. He had been a boy in Thessalonica when he had first seen the man who had become the usurper, returning with a troop of cavalry from a raid against the Slavs, covered in glory. The soldiers had been throwing out silver coins, and Michael had caught one. Though his family had been poor then, he had never spent it, and the coin was still with the rest of his effects back in Anatolia. He had been a young officer when this man had returned from exile, bringing the tribesmen of the Kapagak to his homeland's aid against the soldiers of the Caliph. Michael had not been much older when they became lovers, and not much older than that when he had helped him in his bid for the throne. The sword point quivered. Michael's hands had become unsteady, his mouth had gone dry. But there was already blood on the sword. The die had already been cast. If he turned back now, the Emperor would take his eyes and send him to live out his days in a monastery. If he went forward... He took a slow breath. The sword steadied in his hand. He raised it to the height of his collarbone and looked one last time into the face he had once loved. He exhaled and with the flow of his breath he brought down the point of the sword, piercing between two of the Purple Emperor's ribs, and into his heart. The man's eyes snapped open, and he gasped and spasmed. Blood welled up and around the blade, purple in the darkness. The Emperor coughed once, and a gout of orchid-dark blood welled up in his mouth, and spilled down over his cheeks and onto the white silk of his pillow. He spluttered once more, sending up a spray of indigo mist, and then his eyes rolled back in his head and he lay still. Michael took a step back from the bed. For a moment, the wind had died out in the room, and it was silent. The sea itself seemed to have stopped its movement, and the only tides Michael could hear were the ones that boomed in his ears. He stepped onto the balcony to let the wind wash over him. He rubbed his eyes. When he looked at his hands, he found to his surprise that they were clean. It had not been a messy murder, and he wasn't sure what to think about that. He stepped back into the chamber, and looked down at the body, tangled in its bloody sheets. The sword stood up from the Emperor's chest, like a cross on the mound of a fresh grave. His mouth was still dry. He knew that the rest of the night was vital, that now was the time to rally his supporters, now was the time to purge the usurper's Armenians, now was the time to find the Patriarch and have himself crowned. 
but a deep exhaustion filled him up. Just a moment. All he needed was a moment, to come to grips with what he had done. He sat on the end of the bed and put his head in his hands. He breathed deeply. For a moment, that last flashing of the Emperor's eyes had embedded in his mind. But then that image was replaced by a new image of himself, Emperor Michael Radopolos, Michael the Restorer, dressed in the purple, dressed with the imperial diadem, walking the streets with his Empress Irene, while the people of the capital cheered and showered them with rice, overjoyed by the return to orthodoxy and legitimate rule. A slow smile, the same smile that had crossed his face in the crypt, crept back across his features. But then... Michael. Michael froze. Michael. Why did you do it, Michael? Michael. Slowly, he turned. Of all people, of everyone, I never thought it would be you, Michael. I never thought it would be you. The Emperor was sitting up in his bed. The sword still protruded from his heart, but it was clear that the heart had begun to beat again. For every second, the blade shook slightly, and a fresh gush pumped out along it to gather and drip at the hilt. Likewise, as he spoke, the blood continued to throb out from his mouth, filling his beard and flowing down the wrinkles of his neck to pool at the join of his neck and collarbone. Speechless, Michael stood and backed away. With a groan, the Emperor swung his legs over the edge of the bed and hunched over, laughing slightly from the pain. Ah, <laughs> oh, Michael. Ah, oh, it's been so long since someone last killed me. I'd forgotten how it was. I'd forgotten the pain. He took a deep breath and rose to his feet, stretching so that the bones and tendons in his back and shoulders crackled. He turned his head to the left and to the right, and then turned to face his former favorite, now so empurpled with blood as to live up to his self-given nickname. You've done quite the number on me, Michael. In a number of ways. I wish I could say the emotional pain was worse, but... Ah. He reached up to his chest and, pulling down with both hands, he screamed with pain and snapped the blade in half between his ribs and flung the hilt to the floor. Michael took a step away and found his back against one of the pillars dividing the room from the balcony. The Emperor wheezed with pain, crouched over and gripping his knees. Taking a deep breath, he straightened again and plunged pinched fingers into the hole in his chest. He screamed with pain again, his voice ratcheting up through the octaves, and grasped the snapped-off shard of steel, pulling it out and holding it in his hand like a dagger. The razor edges of the sword tore into his fingers, but the pain must have been inconsequential compared to that what had gone before. He threw the shard to the ground and rushed at Michael, holding the young man's face with his bleeding palms. How could you betray me, Michael? You were my favorite. You were my all. How could you turn against me when I gave you everything? How are you still alive? Don't you know, Michael? Haven't you heard the rumors of my heresy? Haven't you heard about the deals I made in the mountains? About the powers that I've come to serve? A purple angel for a purple Emperor Michael. Look! The Emperor's sleeves had slid down his slick and skinny wrists, and from the middle forearm up his arms were covered in brands and scars and purple tattoos, all in the shape of wings. And look how I've been rewarded, Michael. Look what gifts the angel gives me in return for the offering I've given him. You poor boy. You poor, beautiful boy. You never had a chance. But he was cut off by a bloody thwack, 
and the Emperor's eyes widened further and then rolled back into their sockets. He slumped forward into Michael, smearing him with carnage, and then he was wrenched backwards by the head, tumbling to the tiles like a bundle of rags. Behind him, pale in the gloom, stood Irene. In her upraised hand, smeared down the half to her wrist with blood and brains, was her father's axe. For a moment, they stood in silence, staring at each other, horrendous with gore. Then, from the floor came the sound of low laughing. Not that easy. Not that easy. Jaw slack with horror, Irene took a step back. Then, as the Emperor put one hand beneath his body and began to push himself up, her face changed and she swung the axe down again with both hands, thudding into his spine like a chunk of timber. Again and again she hacked down with the axe, cleaving apart his spine and skull, breaking the Emperor's joints, slicing open the muscles and rupturing the cartilage. But still, the Emperor laughed. <laughs> Not so easy. At last, she screamed, and with a final effort, crunched the axe into the Emperor's neck, all but parting it from his shoulders. For a moment, she stood wheezing with exertion and terror. At the entrance to the Imperial Chamber, somebody had begun pounding on the doors. On the floor, in the midst of a spreading sea of purple blood, tattered shreds of the Emperor's exposed lungs began to twitch with life again. Come on. We have to go. Wordlessly, Michael followed her. They closed the entrance to the secret passage behind them, even though their bloody footsteps led right to it. As the stones slid back into place, they heard the beginnings of choking laughter. Ingar was waiting for them in the crypt. Did you kill him? No. Then we have to go. Now. By the time they reached the street, the alarm had been raised. Braziers had been lit on the walls of the Bucolian, and soldiers rushed along the battlements, the reflection of firelight on their armor flickering them in and out of existence. They raced through the streets. The footsteps of soldiers were all around them. At the entrance to the Cantoscallion Harbor, they were challenged by a guard, and Ingar murdered the men without a second thought. A longship was waiting for them, crewed by Vikings who had once sailed with Irene's father. And those ships were sent out after them. By daylight, they were well out over the Black Sea, and not a sign of pursuit across the purple water. In later years, Irene and Michael Redopolos made a meager living off the soil of Gotland. And away in the south... Year after year, the Purple Emperor's armies brought new lands and cities and peoples under the benevolent wing of the Purple Angel. And what that angel wanted with them, nobody could say yet. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, with music composed by Elon Zittrin. This week's episode, In Constantinople, was written by Alexander Saxton. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Player FM, or any one of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook and Twitter for updates on Season 3, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. So until next time, and there will be a next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>